Good morning. Good morning. Oh, that's pretty good. Wow, wow. I felt like I'm in an echo. I've got actually a little boost going there. Go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. As you are turning there, um, where's Robbie? Where's he at? Robbie, right? Robbie? Oh, there he is. I just want to give credit where credit is due. Uh, there was a throw down at the chess uh, table yesterday. I concede he, he beat me. He beat me. So. That said, I believe I still have caught more fish than you have. I believe the old saying goes, teach a man to fish and he eats all, you know, every day. Teach a man chess and he'll go hungry. So, I'll, I'll let you have some of my fish, that's okay. So, something like that. Um, well, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and uh, go ahead, you can stand. If you're able, if not, that's okay. Fall right into the Corinthians. It says, boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up in the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason... To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Our Almighty God, um, we come to this passage so familiar to us, uh, raises so many questions for us. But Lord, we, uh, we do implore you this morning that you will show us how in each of our lives, wherever you might have us, wherever you might be taking us, that we can embrace as the Apostle Paul did, that in our weaknesses, and you know that we have our weaknesses, that in these, your power can be shown, your strength can be displayed. 
And may we boast in our weaknesses, not in and of themselves, but in the fact that they magnify the glory of our God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you be seated? I don't know if uh, when you were younger, maybe at this age, but oftentimes when uh, kids are younger, uh, someone might get around to asking them, hey, when you grow up, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? And there was one of those times when uh, our oldest son, I keep referring to just as our oldest son, uh, his name's JD, though he doesn't go by JD anymore because he's all grown up now. Uh, but our oldest son, JD, and Luke were... Again, it seems like every story is when you guys were three and four. I don't know. But, it, you know, it seems about that. You know, when they were younger, that question came up. Why in the world we wanted to ask them what they wanted to be when they grew up when they were three and four? I don't know. Uh, but uh, at that time, as some of you heard around the breakfast table this, this morning, uh, J.D. was the angelic, uh, compliant child. Luke was not. <laughs> he, he was the, he was the, uh, yeah, the, uh, what do they call it? The, um, yeah, the, the bad seed, the, the demon child. And, uh, you know, that the power of God might be displayed. Uh, so the, the question was posed to them, Hey, what, you know, what would you guys like to be when you, when you grow up? Now, you have to realize at the time, at that time, I was not teaching. Uh, I was actually uh, a pastor. And J.D. being the compliant child and wanting to, you know, I'm sure that's why. Uh, and that's what he saw in his life, wanting to please his, his parents, said, I want to be a pastor. To which, of course, you know, my wife and I were like, oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> and Luke, what do you want to be? And I quote, I want to be a dancer. <laughs> and we're like, where, where did that come from? We don't even dance at home. Why does it want to be a dancer? That didn't last long. As you know, with, with kids, right, that they, they change almost weekly. And at some point to this day, I still don't know, maybe Luke can explain this later around the prior. But he moved on from being a dancer to, at one point, he says he wanted to be a sumo wrestler. <laughs> and again, we weren't doing a lot of wrestling at home. Uh, but at that point, and you, you know, even now, but certainly at that point, we're looking at him and say, son, I don't think that's in the cards for you. Because, quite frankly, he did not have the body type <laughs> to be a sumo wrestler, right? He kind of overestimated uh, at that point his, uh, his abilities, uh, so to speak. And I really didn't see that changing. Um, by the way, later on, that changed yet again. You'll appreciate this, Kate. Uh, this is when uh, Luke was spending some time with a, a good buddy of his. I, I won't, you know, his, his initials are Jordan Sinelli. Uh, and they both decided together, and I think a lot of boys do this. I remember saying this. 
Uh, they wanted to be firemen. Okay, you know, it's, well, they, they both want to be firemen. But there was a follow-up to that. There was qualifications for that. We don't want to actually go into the fire. We just want to drive the truck. And I said, son, I think it's called firefighter for a reason, not fire truck driver. You know, I think you got to do all of that. I'm, right at some point, you got to do some of that other fighting part, right? Uh, but, you know, the whole sumo wrestler thing always stuck with me because I knew he wasn't properly equipped. And as uh, Clint Eastwood's Dirty Harry said in the movie Magnum Force, he said, a man's got to know his limitations. Uh, you got you got to realize there's a point where, yeah, it's, it's just not going to happen. And we need to know that, right? We need to be able to humbly say, look, this is this is how God has equipped me. This is where I'm at. And... and we see from Scripture, throughout Scripture, I mean, you could practice, practically say it from Genesis to, or as they say in my old seminary, you know, from Genesis to the maps, meaning all of Scripture, um, that God's power we see over and over and over again rests on the humble, not those who are self-exalting or see very highly of themselves. In, uh, the, in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 57, it says, And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Weakness and humility, uh, it's, it's God's way of operating in the world. Uh, again, we can look in the Old Testament over and over again. You, you see the ones who God used, the one that God chose. Those instruments tended to be those who were weak in some fashion, those who were humble in some way. Uh, Abraham confesses that he was, quote, nothing but dust and ashes. Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? That wasn't some kind of you know, false humility, pseudo-humility. He really felt like, look, I'm, I'm nothing. Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. David, right? King David says, do you think it is no small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I am only a poor man and little known. So God delights in the weak things. And far too often there are those who are just the opposite. They believe very highly of themselves, right? They um, perhaps as we would say, they, they believe their own hype. And because of it, they oftentimes receive great downfall. That theme we see at least in two of the Rocky movies. The very first one, right, if those of you know the Rocky films, uh, probably the best of the Rockies, the first one, uh, with Apollo Creed. If you remember, they said, hey, we're going to give this no-name a, a chance. And if there's that one scene, it's a great scene in the movie, where... Apollo's 
dealing with all his managers and everything about, okay, we're going to have this and that, and you know, the show, right? We're putting on the big show. And one of his guys is watching the TV and the news where you have Balboa in the meat locker pounding on some meat, destroying the thing. And he's got the bloodied hands and everything. The guy's, hey, uh, hey, uh, you know, champ, you better see this. You know, this guy's serious. Oh, yeah, I'm serious, too, as he's working out the details. And, you, you know, we see how that work, you know, kind of falls out. And then in Rocky IV, virtually the same thing with Ivan Drago, where through the whole thing we see that, you know, because he's rushed him and it's the Cold War, you know, he's, he's on the juice, he, and he's like, he's just a machine. But then there comes that crucial point in the fight. Oh, okay, I thought we were getting into it. There's that crucial point in the fight where Rocky lands the blow and cuts him. He bleeds. And in the corner, Rocky's trainer says, he's worried. He's talking about Drago. He's worried. You cut him. You hurt him. You see, he's not a machine. He's a man. You've, you've built him up to be this thing that is invincible, and he's not. He's just a man. And that was the turning point for Rocky. But these, these two opponents of his had built up their own hype. They had believed their own hype. And oftentimes we see that in our own lives, perhaps the lives of others. But I think you know, we want to have self-examination here of how often do we believe our own hype where God oftentimes will bring us low so that he might be exalted through us. So this brings us to 2 Corinthians 12 where I believe Paul offers us three assurances that we are free to be weak. Our society fights against that. We exalt the, the glorious and the strong, the proud. But in Christ, if we are free for real, free indeed, we are free from even that, of having to Keep the appearances of strength. It's okay to be weak, not exalting in our weakness, but exalting the fact that God can be displayed in and through our weaknesses. So our three assurances this morning, our first one in the first six verses there, the basically half of our passage, is that God can take you to a high place. This is, this is kind of a pro, uh, progression here. God can take you to a high place. He might not. But he can, he often does. God can take you to a high place. And he does this with the Apostle Paul. Now, in the context that there were false apostles that had these grand claims of what they had done, the experiences that they had, and these visions and these revelations that they had had, If we were to go back to 1 Corinthians, and we won't, but 1 Corinthians 14, you would see that in Corinth, their worship services were marked by these things. These people saying that they had had visions and that they had revelations from God. And, you know, look how grand I am. Look how God is using me because I have had these great experiences. Now, from piecing everything together, and 2 Corinthians is 
far as we know, is probably more like his third letter to the people in Corinth. But these are the two that God has given to us. That the vision that Paul had occurred before he ever made his first visit to Corinth. So this is actually going way back. Now, not sure how it happened, right? We only have the details that Paul gives us. But it is attributed to God acting because he says he was caught up. It means snatched up. And it is involuntary. It's not... Paul's not saying, and I did this. He said, God caught me up. He brought me up. Something happened to Paul, though he doesn't give us the details of exactly how did that happen. And he, he tells us that he was caught up to the third heaven, which is acquainted here, as Paul tells us in verse 4, with paradise, where he heard things. Did he see things? Don't know. That would be speculation. He just tells us that he heard things, right? Inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. He doesn't give us the details even of what he heard. He just said, this this is what happened. This was my experience. And verse 5 is very telling. Because he says, on behalf of such a man, I will boast. He's going to boast in such a man. What man? A man in Christ. You'll notice a couple times he says, such a man, such a man. This man is a man in Christ. He's speaking about himself, but he, it's like he's talking about himself in the third person. We know it's a man in Christ because he told us that in verse 2. But he says, but I'm not going to boast about myself. And he's like, okay, Paul, you're, you you know, got a split personality here or something going on? No, basically saying this man, it's almost like he's saying, I don't want to be connected with this. It happened to me, but I don't want it to be boasting on my own merits, in my own flesh, of what I have accomplished. He said, if he did, now you'll notice in verse 6, he says, for if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish. But that's kind of a backwards way of saying it would be foolish for me to do it, but ultimately it wouldn't be for one reason, because it would be the truth. Right? If it was a lie, then it would be foolishness. But he says, you know, ultimately, if I really did, it would be the truth. Unlike the false apostles, he doesn't want to build himself up. He doesn't want to make more of himself than he is. Kind of like a, a name dropper. Oh, you know, da, da, da. oh, did I tell you I met? And just, you know, the people that you've met. Well, this is like a vision dropper. Oh, yeah, 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 last summer I had this vision. Oh, did, did I tell you about this vision that I had? You know, and trying to bring attention to yourself. God can take you to high places. He can bring you up. But the point is, God is the one to bring you up, right? The false apostles were the one who were trying to elevate self. God, at some point, and his sovereignty says, Paul, I'm going to give you this, this vision. Something that you can't even share with others in the sense of the details, right? Because the words are inexpressible. I, I think this is somewhat illustrated, I guess we could say, from Luke uh, Luke 14. Is that another one? Yeah, hold on. 
Yeah, Luke 14, uh, 7. says, he began to speak a parable to invite a guest. Um, and the, the whole idea is of, uh, of the, the seating arrangements of all things. It says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the place so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say, friend, move up to a higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever is humbled will be exalted. First century, we've talked about this earlier, meals were huge. And the seating at the meals were huge. Now, I think most of us, when we think of first century meals, we think of Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper, which was historically incorrect. Beautiful picture, terribly incorrect historically. They didn't sit at tables like that. They actually reclined on the ground, laying down, and the, the seating would have been in like a, almost like a U shape so that the servers could come in, they would place the food in. And the thing was, whoever the host was, the closer you were to the host, the more elevated you were. So Jesus is saying, don't rush in and grab that seat next to you know, to, to be the person of importance. He says, you take the last seat. You allowed the host. They say, no, 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 dear friend. You come sit next to me. Let him be the one who exalts you. Not really. He says, think how embarrassing it would be if you had that top seat. And they go, hey, you need to move down. I got somebody more important to sit here. It does make me scratch, just totally on the side, make me wonder, at the Last Supper, you have John on one side, the Apostle John, Who's on the other side? Some of you know this. Who dips in the morsel with them? Judas. Judas. I'm not saying that's how the seating arrangement was every time, but the seating that night was John on one side, laying on Christ's breast on that side of him, and on the other side was Judas, which I'm still trying to work out in my own mind why that was the case. I thought that was interesting how Christ arranged the seating that night. But I, I think that pictures for us, allow God to be the one who is exalting you, not exalting yourself. Now, he tells us, Paul does back in 2 Corinthians, this happened 14 years ago. Paul, this is old news. Why are you bringing it up now? I think for a few reasons. This was before they knew Paul. Right and his authority, by the time we get to 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, things are pretty bad between Paul and the Corinthians. By the time we get to 2 Corinthians, it's really bad. They're definitely questioning his apostleship. Some have even said they may even be questioning his, his salvation. Right? I mean, they really have great doubts about Paul. So perhaps he's having to establish somewhat his authority with them. Clearly, he had not shared this with them prior to this letter, which in a roundabout sort of way indicates that he felt there was little, little value in it. And that's his very point. I hadn't shared this with you before because, you know, having visions isn't 
That's not what's important. Even though that's what you're exalting, I haven't shared this with you before because if it was important, I would have shared it with you. And, and this is the reason, and we can see in verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, right? Because he is given a thorn in the flesh, the clearest evidence of his weakness. So Paul basically says, look, God has exalted me in this vision. You want to talk about visions. This is one that God had given to me, but that ain't nothing. Let me show you what you ought to be boasting in. And that brings us to our second assurance. The first, God can take you to a high place. Secondly, God can take you to a low place. Verses 7 and 8. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, the fact that he had this great revelation, There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, this thorn in the flesh, I implored, I begged the Lord three times that it might leave me. There's a direct correlation. Paul sees a direct connection between this vision that he had 14 years earlier and this thing that he's referring to as a thorn in the flesh. I refer to some of my students as a thorn in the flesh, but that's probably not being terribly biblical at that point. But he has this thorn in the flesh. He says, God's given this thorn to me because of this vision, so that this great vision, this great revelation, so that I would not exalt myself, because God knows that's exactly probably what I would do. So he's given to me this, this thorn in the flesh. I mentioned earlier this week the, uh, the musical uh, Fiddler on the Roof, and there's this, Tevye has so many, the, the main character has so many great insights. He has these conversations with God all the time. It's a one-sided conversation, but they're, they're great conversations. And in the, the movie, as he's talking to us, the viewer, he says, sometimes I think when it gets too quiet up there, you say to yourself, what kind of mischief can I play on my friend Tevia? As if God's sitting there like, ah, it's kind of a boring day today in, in heaven. What can I do to really mess up Tevia's life? You know, you kind of wonder, does Paul, does Paul come down and say, ah, God, what are you doing? Everything was going so well, and he gives me this thorn in the flesh. Now, a few minutes about this thorn in the flesh. There, there really is no need for us to debate what the thorn was because we don't know. We could speculate, well, maybe it was this, maybe it was that. You know, people are saying, well, you know, his eyesight was bad or who knows. We, we just don't know. It, it would be speculation. What we do know, we can get from Paul here. First, it was given to Paul to keep him from exalting himself because of the revelation. That we do know. That was the reason for it. Do we always know why God has brought something into our lives that we might consider a thorn in the flesh? No, we don't always know that. Paul connected the, the two together. 
The picture that is used here, the word that Paul uses is more like a steak. I don't mean something we eat. I mean like, you know, a big steak. Uh, we, we might think of a, a, a thorn. Some of you perhaps have gotten thorns in the flesh this week. I know Jericho did three minutes after we got here. My brother, my eldest brother, my oldest brother, uh, he got a thorn in the flesh. He got, he got a splinter. And my mother, who uh, had been a registered nurse at, at some point, said, oh, let me, let me get that out. And my brother was probably, I'm guessing probably about your age there, between 13, 15 years of age. And I remember him sitting in the, the kitchen as my mom was getting that splinter out. And my, maybe it runs in the family because I'm the same way and so is Luke. <laughs> yeah, he'll, he'll admit it. I've been there when it's happened. Uh, but he's taking the thing out and my brother all of a sudden goes, boom, and falls to the floor and passed out because he was getting a splinter out. That, that probably would have been me too. This is not just a little splinter. This is a steak you know how much a, a splinter irritates you, right? Until it's out, you know, once it's out, you know, even though, even though it might be bleeding a little bit or something, it feels so much better. But when it's there, it's just a constant reminder. It's almost like your whole body's re- responding to that one little thing. Well, Paul's saying there, there's a stake that God has put into my skin. Somehow it's connected, the third thing we know about it, somehow it's connected with satanic activity, right? It's a messenger of, of Satan to torment me. The, the word that's used for uh, torment uh, literally means to beat. The idea is a humiliating violence. Paul's getting beaten down physically is the picture, uh, you know, it, seen enough movies of guys, you know, jumping on one guy, they're kicking him and, you know, making fun of him. It's almost like that sense. It's to humiliate him. And the, the term that Paul uses is what we call a present tense, meaning it wasn't just something, a one-time thing. It means it's, it happened and it's continuing on. It's still there, as we know. He's still being tormented by this. The tormenting hasn't left. It's still there. And we can assume, I I believe, that Paul at first did not appreciate or understand its purpose. At least not at first. Because he asked that the stake, this messenger, whatever it is, to be removed. Which, as an aside, I think it's important for us to understand there was nothing sinful in Paul asking for it to be removed. You might have something in your life, maybe it's something physical, maybe it's an emotional, whatever it is. Maybe it's a person. For that, that, that's causing this torment for you, there's nothing wrong for you to say, God, I'm leaving it to you to remove this from my life. And leave it with God. But there's nothing wrong in that. But there comes a point where Paul understands, well, this is 
God has given it for a purpose, and he rests right in that. So God can take you to a high place. God can take you to a low place, and really kind of where we're focused, bringing this all here to this free-to-be week. God can, our third assurance, God can demonstrate his power in your weakness. Verse 9 and 10, And he, God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. It's enough. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecution, difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The Lord responds. How does he respond? We don't know. Simply, though, it, it seems to be somehow, maybe it was verbally, but somehow he spoke into Paul's life and says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfecting weakness. We could, we could put in two words, request denied. Paul, I've heard you. No. Three times he asked I don't know. Did Christ tell him each time? No. No. For the last time. No. I don't know. Or maybe it was just finally after the third request, somehow he communicates to him, no. And God is sovereign in this. Could Christ have said, yes, Paul, it's enough? Yeah, of course he could have. Again, years ago when Luke and J.D. were probably three and four because everything happened during that time period. Uh, I was not there at the time. Cho relayed this this incident uh, to me. Thank goodness there were no bath time toys around, as we find out that Luke, some of you heard earlier this morning, he was a brute beating down his brother with uh, bath time toys. But they're in the band. Back when we had a good old, you know, minivan, and my wife was driving in the Two boys were back in their seats, and there was some kind of toy. I don't know what it was. Apparently, we only had one of them because they both wanted the one toy. Guess who had it? Luke had the toy. Excuse me. His brother wanted that toy. And instead of beating his brother down, the older son, son, J.D., appeals to his mother. What a great, loving child, right? <laughs> he said, Mom, Luke won't let me have whatever it was, the crazy bones or whatever it was that they liked. He said, Mom, let, you know, J.D., or Luke won't let me have such a, he's had it for a while, I should have it now. To which my loving wife, had a great here's a teachable moment. Why don't you pray about it, son? <laughs> so JD and his angelically, dear God, I want that toy. <laughs> Please make Luke give me the toy, or something to that effect that a four-year-old would say. Amen. And as soon as he's done with the Amen, Luke's response was. Sometimes God says no. <laughs> wow! 
That's the truth. We're not making that up. Out of the mouths of babes. Because there's some profound truth in his wicked ways. Um, Because God sometimes does say no. He's sovereign in those things. And he said no to the Apostle Paul. And Paul finally got it. He said, okay, I've asked three times. He hasn't removed it. He's told me, no, I'm not going to remove it. Matter of fact, I want you to lean in on my grace. And I will give you the grace that you need to bring glory to me through this, in this, not around it, not once it's been removed. Thank you, God, for removing it. And I'm sure Paul would have given thanks to God for that. But God said, no. It's going to stay with you to keep you from exalting yourself. And in this, Paul, you're going to be astounded at how my power will be demonstrated through you much more so than if I remove it from you. See, God's grace and his power parallel here. Grace is not just for salvation. It's for life. It's for ministry. It's for each and every day. Notice Paul is not saying weakness is power. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying your weakness is power. No. But that the power of Christ is made evident. It's manifest in our weaknesses. He says that, that, that my, where he says my grace is key. Paul is not speaking about some just generic power that we get through weaknesses, but the power of Christ shown through our weaknesses. Think about the disciples. And it's, it's great how Jesus bookends this in the, the life of of the disciples in the ministry that they have with with Christ. At the very beginning, not with all the disciples, but with a handful of them, and you know know the story, as he comes upon Peter and his brother, they're they're out fishing because they're fishermen. Right? I mean, they're not like my kind of fishing yesterday morning where I'm just having fun and throwing. No, this is their business. This is what they do. They're experts at this. And they're, they're out there fishing, and if you remember when Right, Christ is there the first time they're going to meet with them. They haven't caught a thing. Zero. Boy, Peter, kind of a loser, aren't you? You haven't caught anything. You got skunked. You're not getting you're not getting paid today. Because you haven't caught anything. That's your business. And Jesus, that's not what Jesus says, by the way. That's that's not some loose translation. Uh, no, what he says is, cast your net over there. You know the story. Man, we can't barely bring this thing in. And it's a life changer for him. Was it because all of a sudden they're great fishermen? No, it's because of the power of Christ. Demonstrated to the fact that they were losers that morning. Fast forward three years. Christ has been crucified. He's risen again. And... Peter, who denied Christ three times, looking back over his life as a spiritual man and said, okay, I've tried to be the spiritual guy. 
and I was a failure. I'm going back to what I know, where I'm from, my strength. I'm going back to fishing. And a couple of the other guys say, yeah, we'll, we'll go with you. So they go out, back to what they know. What happens? They get nothing. They're skunked again. What's Peter left with? I failed as a spiritual man. I failed in fishing. I'm just a failure. There's Jesus on the shore. Cast your net. It's the Lord. You know, get some swim back in, you know. So you have this great bookend in the ministry of Christ where he shows Peter and the other disciples, you're nothing without me. But my power will be demonstrated in your weaknesses. And he says, Paul says here, it will be perfected, right, perfected. Uh, for power is perfected in weakness. It means brought to completion or made fully present. And again, this is the present tense. Not finished yet. It's in the process. One commentator said, put it this way. He said, God brought the elated Paul down to earth, right from the, the revelation, and pinned him there with a thorn. I think that's a graphic image, but it's a great image. It also pinned him closer to God. This is not some kind of triumphalism, but it's reality. And it's a sacred trust in the Holy One. Peter's brought low. Uh, And I'm not just talking about his fishing. In Luke 22, uh, this, I think, is an amazing... I'm so glad Luke includes this. Luke... I know I keep talking about the Gospel of Luke. It's just, it's, it's a great, I mean, all the Gospels are great, but this one I just uh, clearly enjoy. He says, uh, well, we, I'll back it up just a little bit. This is Luke um, 22, and I'll begin in verse 22. Uh, oh, we'll do 21. Oh, we go 20. No, we'll start at 21. <laughs> Behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine at the table. This is hours before Christ is going to be arrested and crucified. Just a few hours. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. That's some heavy stuff. And there was other heavier stuff right before, but he says, I mean, Christ said, and what is the disciples' response? This is amazing. Christ has washed their feet. He's telling them, I'm leaving one of you are going to betray me. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Notice nobody, it's not like they all chime in. It's that Judas guy, I knew it all along. Nobody suspects it's Judas. But they're starting to who is it? That's how it begins. Who is it? You know, maybe it's him. You know, you know they're, they're starting to, and then quickly, you see, this 
Man, it really drops down quickly. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. Whoa, 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 how did we get there so quickly? That escalated quickly. I mean, so, I mean, really, it started, right? Christ shows, you know, you know I'm the servant of all. I'm leaving. I'm going to be betrayed. Oh, I wonder who's, who's going to do it. And you know how it went. Well, it might be him, but it's not me because I've done this. Oh, Jesus took me up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Right there, all of a sudden, they start to realize, well, it couldn't be me because the last three years, you know, this is what I've done for Jesus. And, and all of a sudden, it becomes, rather than, oh my goodness, he's leaving and he's the servant of all, to which one of us is the greatest, and Jesus knows that they're talking about this. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you, or it should not be this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. He says, I've shown you what it means to be a leader. It's one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then comes this great insight for Peter, called Simon here, right? He's, he's not Peter yet. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded, he has requested permission to sift you like wheat. If you know how they did wheat, right? They, they bring it in, there's the chaff, and they would, they would like be throwing this stuff. It, it's the pitchers violently going to attack you. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus is having a real moment with Peter here. He says, Peter, I mean, he picks him out among all the others, right? Because Peter, let's admit, probably, you know, he's really kind of the, the leader among the disciples. And he's going to have that role in the early church. He says, Peter, Satan's coming after you. It's going to be hard, but I prayed for you. It's basically, you're going to have a thorn in your flesh, but my grace is sufficient for you. I prayed for you. And of course, Peter, being Peter, he's not ready for that. Lord, with you, I am ready to go both to prison and to death. Jesus, you're wrong. This ain't going to happen. I, I would do anything. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. Not only will you not go to death, you won't even confess that you even know me to a servant girl. So, Peter, you're going to be brought low. 
you are going to turn again. Read that in the words of Christ, his promise. I've prayed for you. And he says, when you turn again, minister to you, to your brothers. He says, but you are going to be brought low before you're, before you're there. You're not ready to minister to your brothers in their needs. You're not there yet. You will be after you've gone through very difficult time, sifting, satanic attack. I believe it's interesting that Paul begins this letter, 2 Corinthians, in this way. After he does his basic introductions, Paul to the church, grace to you, all those kinds of things, he says that this is how he begins the letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Why? So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What a great promise. Paul basically saying, look, we're we're all going to go through stuff. And if we're leaning in hard on Christ, God's grace, he will comfort us in the midst of our difficulties for the purpose, not just that we're relieved of that, but so that through that, through our experience, through the difficulties, we might minister the grace and mercy, comfort of Christ. As we've been comforted, we now can comfort others. There's a purpose in the misery. There's purpose in the tribulation, in the difficulties. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul says this early on. For consider your calling, brethren. Again, we need to keep in the context really of both these letters that the Corinthians always were looking, they're looking at Paul, looking at his life. Wow, Paul, everywhere you go, you get rejected, you get beat up, they're trying to kill you, you've been shipwrecked. Maybe God's not with you. But look at these other guys over here. Everything seems to be going smoothly for them. They didn't understand how God works. It's very much like those who came to Christ, right? The man born blind. Well, who who sinned here? What, was it his parents or was it his sin? They figured they had it figured out. Well, clearly because something terrible in his life, the fact that he was born blind, it must be because of the result of sin. And remember what Jesus said? You guys got it all wrong. It's not the parents' sin. It wasn't his sin. It's so that God might be glorified in his, this man. Because guess what? I'm going to heal him and show my powers through his weakness. We get it wrong all the time. We always look to the, what we consider the strong, the prosperous, you know, in ministry, the, the people with the big church, big attendance, big budgets. Not that God can't work through our churches. That's not what I'm saying. But we put so much stock in that. But this is what he says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. He's, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 26. 
He says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, according to man's standards, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written let him who boasts boast in the Lord we so often try to hide or deny our weaknesses it's the way of the world it's part of our culture our society we don't celebrate the weaknesses, we celebrate the victories. Now, I quite honestly can't tell you who won the Super Bowl last year. Some of you could. I don't, I don't need to know that. But we probably don't remember who came in last. You might if it was your team. But we normally don't celebrate. Right? They don't get the nice rings, the extra pay. They might get traded or lose their contract. But it's just a part of our culture, right? We don't celebrate those types of things. And very much so within the people of God, we do the same thing. We're, we're looking for, you know, those are our own personal weaknesses, whatever they might be. We're going to hide that. We can't show that. Author Steve Brown said this, the greatest tragedy of the church is that in many cases, the most dishonest hour of the week is the hour we spend at church. I think he's right. That during the week, maybe with your buddies at work, or yeah, you know, we are who we are, but oh, okay. Going to church. Get the kids in the van. You have an argument on the way to church. You're yelling at the kids in the back. Let your brother have that toy. And then when your door opens up, going on everybody. How was your week? Oh, it was great. How was your week? That was great. That's about as far as it goes. Now, I'm not saying as soon as you come out, oh, good Lord, somebody come over here. I had a terrible week. But there is a place to be able to say, you know, for honesty, to be able to show our weakness. It brings us back to our main theme for this week, free indeed. Free from our own pride, free from others and what they might think of us, because ultimately I answer to one, I answer to God. Free to exalt the power of God in and through us. Why? Because Christ has freed us from our sin. We're free indeed. And don't have to pretend like we're something we're not. Though that is our, typically our default position. Now, 
I will say very briefly, and I asked her ahead of time if I could do this, um, but my lovely bride has, as I've shared with you, in, in some sense we could say, a thorn in the flesh that God has chosen over the last 14 years not to take from her. And her life has changed quite a bit because of that, as have others. Um, there was pre-illness, you know, things that she could glory in, in the flesh. And God took that from her. And I can say, having watched God work through her in the last 14 years, she has glorified God more in her right now. Sorry. In her illness than he, she ever did prior to. You're free to talk to her about it. She'll, she'll gladly talk to you about it. And how she feels God has worked through that. And how he's been exalted through that. Now, for those of you who are thinking, how dare you talk about your wife's illness out loud? That's the very thing we're talking about. God can be glorified, and we shouldn't be hiding those things. Unless I'm just, again, going front. I got her permission ahead of time to do so. I'm not just doing this for the sake of illustration. But so that you know, she's not she doesn't mind talking about it. Because she knows that God is glorified through her weakness. His strength has been made known. That's a good place to stop. Let's pray. Lord, it's difficult for us to say thank you for tribulation. Thank you for trouble. Thank you for thorns in the flesh. We, we don't joy in that. We don't delight in that. It's painful. It, it hurts. We thank you that you don't scold us or turn your back on us when we come and implore you to take it from us. But Lord, give us the strength. Give us the trust in you when you say, request denied. My grace is sufficient. May we know that you're going to work through that in it and Lord we do not exalt in our weaknesses but we exalt in the power of Christ in us and through us so that in our lives in your perfect sovereignty you know how best to bring glory to yourself through us through sinful beings And as you do, may we know the freedom that we have in Christ to trust, trust you in our lives, to know what is for our good and for your glory. May you be exalted. Christ's name we pray.